Hello and welcome to The Gift of Addiction. My name is Bertie Fagan and this is episode seven. Today on the show is, my guest is Lee Sarich. Lee is a 43-year-old Australian ex-serviceman. He served in the Australian military for two tours of Afghanistan. He's also a recovering alcoholic and addict with 22 years sobriety under his belt. He's on the show today to talk about addiction, alcoholism, and and the trauma related to his time in the military. Thanks for coming on the show, Lee. Thanks, Bertie. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you, Lee, because you've you've got both. I'm sure with 22 years of sobriety, uh, you would have learnt a thing or two, both about addiction and and recovery. But also, well, I want to chat to you about uh, you know your time in the army, what you saw over there, and um, how it affected you when you got back. You'd, you'd hope that after 23 years of, or 22 years, I've learned something about recovery. Yeah. Sometimes I'm not so sure though, you know? Yeah, there you go. But, uh, well, you'd know more than me. That's for sure. Uh, on a good day, maybe, you know, but uh, we talk about it being a day at a time and it's not a joke. Hey, like it really is um, one day is all we've got. And you know, hey, 22 years is awesome, and I could fuck it all up tomorrow. Hey, just as just as easy as that. Do, do you really? And then, think and then uh, oh, it's absolutely possible for sure. Definitely, it's absolutely fucking possible, and uh, and that's the whole point. Hey, it's um, yeah, 22 years is awesome, and I could fuck it all up tomorrow. Like, um, it really is a day at a time, and it's a it's a like a daily proposition. So even after yeah. 22 years of recovery, <coughs> you take nothing for granted. You still. And treat these as if you know the next slip up could happen any time. So you got to stay on your toes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I do have to stay on my toes. And you know, it's um, I guess one of the things that I understand about addiction is that um, like my head, my head will tell me lies. Hey, uh, my head will tell me that um, this time it's going to be okay. And it sounds absurd and ridiculous because it is. And, uh, you know, that, um, and my head told me that it was going to be different <clears throat> many, many, many times when it, it wasn't, you know, it was like the same and it was horrible. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my head will tell me the same thing again, but, uh, this time, particularly after 22 years, it'll be okay. And it sounds convincing, eh? Like, um, and I, it's one, it's, I understand that that's the nature of the disease, that, uh, self-deception. Righto. Well, let's. Can we can we talk about your story? Where you where you came from? You're obviously <coughs> Australian, and where where you grew up, and you know, then how how the disease of addiction manifested itself in your life, and then uh, what happened from there. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's interesting. I think that you call your program the gift of addiction. Yep. Um, because I think that in some ways I was really fortunate to, um, I was definitely fortunate to get recovery quite early. And I think, um, also fortunate that, um, recovery has forced me into the way of life that, that I need to live in order to be able to maintain recovery. But, uh, you know, more, more about that later. But, um, <clears throat> so going back to the start, I grew up in, in country Victoria and in pretty uh, adverse circumstances, I guess you could say. Um, and just to give you a bit of a brief outline, I was adopted and um, 
you know, that's sort of neither here nor there. You know, lots of people are adopted, but the uh, family that I was adopted into, um, I experienced a lot of um, abuse and trauma uh, in that family, and um, they're pretty um, ordinary cards to be dealt, I suppose. You know, the idea that um, I was kind of uh, taken out of my family for, you know, want of better words, to be um, given care, and uh, and I certainly, and you know, I experienced um, a whole different. Um, different variety of um, abuse in the family that I was adopted into such that I escaped. Like I ran away from home when I was 16 and, you know, ran away is kind of putting it mildly. I escaped, um, you know, really um, a violent uh, environment. Where'd and you go? so, you know, I guess um, I went to a mate's place and, um, you know, this mate I'd been telling him about the kind of situation at home for some time and he'd been saying for some time, you know, do come and, come and stay at my place. And, um, and I think, um, I kept, I would sort of tell myself that I was uh, making too much of it. You know, it's a, the kind of really common things that I hear now when people are describing, you know, living in like domestic violence situations. And it's only been, you know, in the last, um, you know, year or so that I've kind of identified, you know, the situation that I was in as being in a domestic violence situation. And, um, yeah, so where I went, I went to my mate's place and, um, yeah, I think I was there for about a week. I I was using drugs and drinking. Um, I'd you know been using drugs and drinking for for a while by then. And um, he said to me after a few days, I can't remember which it was, whether his mum didn't want me drinking or didn't want me taking drugs. One of them she was okay with, and one of them she wasn't. And yeah. uh, and I knew I couldn't stop either. You know, he was sort of saying, "Hey, mate, mum wants you to stop drinking or smoking." I can't remember which one. And I was like. Well, wow, I can't stop. You know, I knew then at sixteen that it just um, it wasn't an option for me actually. And um, so, what happened <clears throat> after that is I actually applied for a job with the army then um, as an apprentice chef, and I was knocked back because I had asthma. And um, so that was that. So I ended up getting a job as a as an apprentice chef um, with a in a civilian restaurant and um, I did that for a couple of years, almost a couple of years. And um, what happened is um, after a couple of years, I just, I simply wasn't able to keep working and maintain my drinking and drug use. Um, and that was before I turned 18. Um, I was probably you know, like 17 and a half by then. So it wasn't, it wasn't even two years. Can I ask you what drugs you were using? Were you just smoking pot or was it harder drugs? I was smoking pot, doing a little bit of speed and taking lots of pills. Right. Drinking. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you you worked in a civilian restaurant as a, an apprentice chef? Yeah. And then uh, that's about 18. So you, you, you left home for good at 16. Yep. And then... Um, Tell me what happens. You're 18, you're, you're working as apprentice chef, you're taking lots of drugs, you're drinking. <laughs> what happens to Lee now? So um, what happened is I wasn't even 18 and um, a mate of mine who I used to drink with, he, uh, he got sober. And um, part of him getting sober was him telling me about the recovery program that he'd found, you know, like in terms of recovery from from alcoholism and um you know 
I used to drink with this guy, you know what I mean? So, you know, and, and he stopped drinking. And so I kind of started then to get the idea that I was an alcoholic. Uh. And, um, but I, I certainly wasn't really interested in stopping drinking. And uh, what happened is basically I knew that I couldn't keep keep working and keep drinking and using drugs in the way that I wanted to. And I didn't think that I was particularly interested in stopping drinking and drugging. So I quit work um, with the intention of becoming a criminal, basically. I thought that, that would um, allow me to you know, drink and use drugs the way that I wanted to drink and use drugs. And I was really fortunate that, um, in fact, what happened is that I um, was introduced to a 12-step fellowship. Uh, and that was, um, I was 17 when that happened. It was like a couple of, couple of three months or something before my 18th birthday. That's, that's pretty having, young for, for, for someone yeah. to, to go to one, one of those meetings. I mean, were you, did, did, were you like one of the youngest people there? Were there other people your age? Yeah. No, no, there were, there were no other people my age. Um, there were a few people who I met that weren't, um, you know, a lot older than me, probably uh, say a lot older. They might have been like six years, um, six or seven years older than me. But, um, yeah, I was, you know, typically the youngest by far in the small country town. Um, it was in New South Wales, actually, small country town in New South Wales where I first came into recovery. Um not so long after that, I um, went to Sydney for um, some, of, you know, some amount of time. There was like a, uh, there was a, a convention, like a recovery convention, happening in Sydney, and so I came to Sydney for that and was exposed to a lot more young people in recovery uh, in Sydney. Um, it wasn't common, but uh, but there were certainly a lot more younger people in recovery in Sydney at that time. It's, Lee, it's just, it strikes me as you're 17, you've, you've already realised that you, you're powerless over your alcoholism and your addiction. You're trying to um, do something about it. This is 17, but you, you still went on for a few more years and then you said you got involved with crime. Tell us the juicy details there. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, uh, what happened? So, um, yeah, ba basically nothing. <laughs> and, uh, what did happen? I ended up getting uh, arrested and, um, you know, it's a long story, but um, I got arrested and uh, ended up in jail. Uh, I was in jail for two months. And, um, you know, I guess the thing with the uh, recovery was um, the recovery program, the 12-step program, it talks about a, uh, like a higher power. And, um, you know, that, that uh, sort of belief in and a reliance upon a higher power as being necessary for recovery. And um, I certainly wasn't interested in that. Um, and you know, so consequently, I, I you know didn't um, didn't get sober, didn't stay sober. I ended up um, getting arrested uh, for being a passenger in a stolen car, and mm. um, you know, I was yeah. So I spent a couple of months in jail and, and got released. And uh, you know what happened? I stepped. I tried to. I continued to to try and seek recovery and uh, just, just didn't, didn't happen for me. It was, it was agonizing. There was probably about a, um, 
you know, 12 or 18 month period where it was like I had a foot in each camp, um, mm. so to speak, in terms of recovery and, um, and the, you know, life of addiction and such. And it was just agonizing. Um, and eventually I just became, you know, desperate enough to surrender. And I, you know, and that's what I'd heard at my, you know, first exposure to, to my first meetings where people were t- talking about recovery and they were talking about surrender. And I thought that, you know, that's okay if you're like old and weak, you know, but, um, yeah. you know, at, uh, 20, um, I wasn't like old and weak, but, um, you know, surrender seemed like, um, like the best, best option. And so, you know, I surrendered to the program. I started to, um, try to practice the program and, you know, I got recovery. Uh, I went into a rehab, in Queensland and you know in the rehab I saw a doctor and I was like diagnosed with um, alcoholism and addiction and I think you know that was probably useful as well because I think some part of me up until then just thought it was a bit of a cop-out you know it was just sort of you know some excuse that uh, you know that weak people kind of invented to um, you know blame the the failure and the misery of their lives on and um, but when I sort of saw a doctor, you know, writing down a diagnosis of alcoholism it kind of, and drug addiction, it kind of gave me the idea that it was um, like a real thing, you know, not just some sort of imaginary excuse. And, um, and so I got serious about recovery. You know, I just started uh, following the program. And, yeah, it was, it was really difficult to, um, to, you know, kind of embrace a new way of life and let go of, a, of an old way of life. All right. So, um, how how old were you when you when you first got it? I mean, I I could imagine that. So you went to jail for a few months there. You said you would have been a young young guy, one of the youngest guys in an adult jail. Is that is that where? Yeah. Well, I was. Uh, I think I was eighteen. Uh, I was ninety. I'm I'm really bad with uh, maths and numbers, but um, like I, I was 20 when I got sober, and that was in '96. I went to jail in '90, '95, so I was like 19 or something. So, how uh, how was that experience for you going going to jail? Uh, it it was horrific. It was horrific, and I think one of the uh, most horrific things about it was how quickly I adapted to it. You know, like, um, you know, that's, and I think that's it's a it's a part of human nature. You know, like, we, you know, we're, we're survivors, and uh, we we adapt to our environment, and that's a good thing. But um, you know, typically and usually, it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. It kind of you know sends the um, sends like I don't know us human the human race forwards. But um, it you know, jail it was a really um, you know violent and. Uh, just horrific environment and you know I tried to uh, adapt to that uh, really quickly and um, uh, you know just yeah survive it I guess. Were there drugs in jail? Yeah definitely. Did you do drugs? I I used heroin for the the first and only time in jail. It was the first time and the only time I used heroin. I loved codeine, loved codeine and uh, took took a lot of um, you know codeine before going into jail. He said you know, get a lot of uh, you know different pills. Used to you used to then be able to get um, like codeine pills over the counter, and I'd get heaps and um, did that in jail as well. Um, codeine pills, but also heroin. Right, smoked heroin. So that was a big motivator <coughs> for you when you got out. I suppose that was almost like your rock bottom. <clears throat> what what I knew, I think, um, it's funny when when I was in jail, um, there were no 
recovery meetings in the period that I was in jail, but um, often there are recovery meetings in a lot of jails. And I think that I um, met a couple of guys um, in jail that were in recovery. And uh, anyway, one of the things that I remember one of these guys talking, and you know, I don't know if he was just trying to be like a mentor or something, but he sort of said that, um, I think he was doing life and he said that you could, you know, you guys keep going along the, the road that you're going and um, you can end up doing life like me, you know, like he was, or you can do, do it on the installment plan, which is, you know, like maybe a year here and then you get out for a bit and then you're back in for another year or a couple of years and you're in and out. And, um, and I could kind of see that that was the way that my life was going, you know, if I didn't, um, didn't change, didn't do anything differently. Um, there's that series, um, Underbelly, that come out, you know, as a whole heap of different Ooh. series. Yep. And um, I remember watching that and, I, you know, I don't know, I'd been in recovery, you know, 10 or 12 years or something, maybe 15 or something at that stage when it came out. And what I remember is watching one of the different series. It does like a, a bio of, you know, some of the different guys. And it was kind of like, you know, this happened and that happened and they started doing this and started doing that. And I was like, fuck, that's me, hey? Like, um, all, you know, like coming from that kind of trauma uh background and then you know this happening and that happening and then um uh you know ending up in jail for the first time and you know like bad stuff happening and i thought um you know i was really fortunate that that didn't become my life yeah and then tell me uh so when what age did you join the army um man i'm not so good with ages and numbers but you were clean. The, you were clean. Yeah, 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 def- definitely. Um, and, you know, I think I, I tried to join the army. Um, I was like maybe two or three years clean. And, you know, I was honest and open about my drug use and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, come back in another year. And, uh, and so I did that. Yep. And, um, you know, because I, I guess in recovery, we, you know, we talk about being honest. And what, what I knew was that... Um, if I was to join the army, I didn't want to be in there and be like looking over my shoulder and kind of worried about what I said, you know, like, so I, you know, I was open about um, my history of alcoholism and addiction. And I joined the army in 2001 in Cairns as a, as a reservist. So uh, I don't know, I think I was about, I don't even want to guess at how old I was because it'll prove how bad I am with maths. But, uh, you know, 96, I was 20, that would make me five, 25, yeah. I was going to say 24, 24, All right. 25. Yeah. So, so a reservist, is that full-time or what, is that part-time? <coughs> Excuse me, it's part-time. Right. And, you know, the, typ- the typical um, phrase used to be um, one weekend a month and two weeks a year. Uh, the particular unit that I was with in Cairns, it was a, um, I think, still is a surveillance and reconnaissance unit and um, they do a lot of um, surveillance like real-time surveillance operations in um, northern australia north queensland and um, so that unit it was uh, common for for soldiers um, including myself to do about 100 days a year Um, what are you uh, what are you surveying up there I mean, what, what <laughs> kangaroos um, and crocodiles? Oh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit more than that. We were, we would look at um, illegal um, fishing boats. Yep. Uh, operating in the uh, northern Australian waters. Um, just before I 
transferred to the regular army. I was on an operation, a surveillance um, operation up in the Torres Straits, and it was a really big operation. It sort of extended down through the Gulf of Carpentaria, and I think there was something like 127 um, illegal um, like foreign fishing vessels that were... Um, seized in Australian waters um, as part of that sort of surveillance operation. And that was in conjunction with um, uh, Border Force. Uh, I, can't, the, I don't know what, what the boats are called. What they, not not oh, the, the Coast Guard. But, uh, the, the current mob? Yeah, I think it's... Yeah. yeah, I think that's the Australian Border Force. It's, or... it's Border Force now. It wasn't Border yeah, Force. No. There was some other, some other name for the... The ships that were sort of doing, you know, like coastal patrols and stuff. But that's yeah. that's funny because that illegal fishing stuff, probably what you're talking about, twenty years ago, that's sort of still still going on today, isn't it? Nothing's uh, really look, changed. I, I, I don't really know. I think there probably has been some success um, in reducing, you know. But yeah, it's been a long time since I've been there. But after I come off that um, operation, I then went to um kapuka like you know as a brand new digger doing a recruit course to uh for my transfer to the regular army yep let's and, talk uh, about that so you went from being a reservist to a full-time um member of the australian armed forces yeah yep so i became a uh, full-time infantry soldier mm -hmm. and um and i was posted to the to one RAR in uh, in Townsville, which yep. is the uh, uh, first battalion, Royal Australian Regiment. Yeah, of course it is, and of course it is. <laughs> it's obvious when you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's kind of interesting. Like um, it's difficult to understand that stuff, and yet to people in the military, it just kind of rolls off our tongue. It's just normal, and um, it, it kind of and you know that's just a normal thing. That's just the name of a unit. Um, you can imagine how uh, difficult it gets trying to relate other more complex experiences yep. um, with, with all that kind of you know, jargon and lingo. You can appreciate the uh, disconnect that can happen between you know, ex-servicemen and women, uh, ex-service people and civilians in trying to um, relate our experiences. So, Lee, when you joined the um, Australian Army as a full-time, um, what, what did you... Inf what did you call it? Um, <laughs> infantry. <laughs> there you go. Inf infantry. Well, yeah. whatever. When, <laughs> when you when you join, my question is this: When you joined the army, when you went from being a reservist to full time, yep. did you know that you were going to be sent to Afghanistan? Is that one of the reasons you joined? Did you have like a a yearning to go and fight somewhere? Or do something um, that involves a bit of adrenaline. I, I didn't have a, a yearning to fight. Um, it certainly seemed uh, probable that I would be deployed, and and I certainly considered that possibility before I uh, requested that the transfer and before I sort of you know lodged my applications to transfer. Um, because I thought that if I wasn't if I wasn't willing to um, you know deploy to Afghanistan and um, and you know fulfil the duties of an infantry soldier, then I, I really had no business um, applying because um, it was certainly you know Australian soldiers were deploying to Afghanistan, and um, so I didn't know for sure, but it certainly seemed likely. Yeah, and I um, mean I resolved that um, 
that uh, decision, I guess, before I joined. And for me, it was, uh, you know, of course, you know, um, there, you know some aspect of um, an adventure and whatever, but um, it, it sounds really corny, but um, it was just really about being of service. And, um, and I thought that, um, that being in the army was uh, like the, the way that I would most be able to be of service. So did you, I mean, as, as an infantry uh, soldier and, and, you know, is it, did, and that's, you know, with an aspiration to be of service, when you get sent to Afghanistan, did you consider like the, the reasons, did you say, well, perhaps is this not right? Should we be in this country fighting? Did those questions come to you? Yeah, they certainly did. And, um, you know, the role of the infantry, I hope I get it right. Um, it's, it's an important thing you know, in the army. The role of the infantry is to seek out and close with the enemy, to kill or capture him, to seize and hold ground and repel attack by day or by night, regardless of sea, season, weather and terrain. There you go. So basically, you know, we find the enemy and kill them. And that, that's the job of an infantry soldier. And, uh, and we did that. And... Um, and I knew that I had to be okay uh, with that, you know, before I joined and, and, and I was. And um, so, and then, you know, the question of whether um, what we were doing there was right. Yes, I, I did ask that question of myself and I did believe that it was, absolutely. I still believe it today. Okay. So what, what you know, uh, that you came back and then you, then you went back as part of the six battalion of the royal australian regiment is that right yeah, how many years right. in between so how how long was the tour the first tour how long were you there for first tour was about um seven months um with one rar and uh on that tour i was in a um an ied strike you know the vehicle that i was traveling in hit an ied and um that resulted in our driver being killed and um, and a number of other injuries for you know, people that were in that vehicle. And uh, particularly it led to, um, well, not particularly, but for personally for me, it led to be, me being diagnosed with PTSD probably about uh, eight months later or something. Uh, so that was in 2007 when that happened. And... Um, I redeployed to Afghanistan with six RAR in two, 2010. So that's, <clears throat> that's incredible. So after you've been diagnosed with post-traumatic mm. stress disorder, you go yeah. back for more. Yeah. And, um, you know, I struggled with, um, accepting that I had PTSD and, uh, you know, one of the things that my CO, one of my COs at the time said to me was that we were just going to treat it like any other injury. And, and I think that that sounded like a very reasonable approach, you know, like people get hurt, um, you know, on deployment overseas and it might be broken bones or whatever. And you go through a rehab program and you get stronger and you go back to work. And, you know, we approached the PTSD the same way. I went through a, a treatment program. Uh, you know, like I was on leave for like six six months or something. Um, it was quite a long time. And then I went on a gradual return to work program. Um, the treatment seemed effective, you know, because, you, know, you know, prior to the treatment, I was having um, like flashbacks all the time and lots of like anger and anxiety, 
not sleeping, blah, 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 blah. You know? and, uh, like it was bad. I'm sort uh-huh. of it was really bad. And uh, you know, I got some treatment and everything seemed to be going okay again. I did like a gradual return to work and uh, that seemed to be going well. Um, you know, it seemed to be going really well. I did a, uh, like a promotion course and, you know, passed that and was promoted and, uh, seemed like I was fit to redeploy and did redeploy. Yeah. And then quickly what I found out when I went back to Afghanistan was that, um, there was, there's like the, the combat loads were, t- were too much and I just wasn't able to, uh, to cope, you know, the symptoms of PTSD came back and, um, kind of rendered rendered me ineffective and so i told my commanders that and returned to australia early um after about three months of a seven nine month tour okay and uh what happened post uh so did you continue to serve in the army after you got back from your second tour I was still in the army but um i ended up discharging you know it was a really it was a uh, it was a horrendous bloody time. Um, you know, I felt like I'd, I felt like my mind had failed me uh, with the PTSD, and that I'd failed my mates in, um, you know, in not being able to to just stay and and finish the tour with them. And you know, the way things work, the um, the guy who replaced me was killed, and uh, you know that was a, like a, just a, a devastating. Uh, uh thing to to accept um it's just one of like the, I don't know, the anomalies of war i guess and um <clears throat> you know fate or whatever i don't know but uh so yeah it was a really difficult time and you know i think back at home in australia the army was talking about um me possibly having some career other than an infantry soldier but um the advice i was getting was that whatever uh, job I had in the army, I, you know, I'd be expected to deploy. And it seemed that, you know, with any deployment, the uh, symptoms of PTSD would return. And so it, that was it for me, really, like the, the army was over. And, um, and I accepted a, a medical discharge, you know, based on, you know, that kind of thinking and that kind of information. And so what's happened um, with your life since that medical discharge? If you don't mind me asking, I just want to know how... The PTSD played out in your life uh, in the years after you left the army, and you know, did you get? Do you feel like you got adequate support from the government? And I mean, are you comfortable with me answering those questions? Yeah. So what happened <clears throat> is, you know, I left the army, and um, you know, for a little while, kind of things seemed okay you know and i thought you know that's a you know it's a tough break it's a you know big hit but um i'll get over it and just kind of you know roll on and get a job as a civilian and just carry on and uh, i seemed to to do that somewhat for you know maybe a year or so and i don't know like a a couple of years down the track like everything had kind of fallen apart you know um i wasn't able to work you know the relationship i was in had fallen apart i ended up becoming homeless and, um, you know, became homeless because I wasn't able to work. I wasn't able to pay my bills, you know, I lost my house. And, uh, like, it's a really sad story. But um, so what ended up happening, um, I came to Sydney and in, it was like 2014 and got some specific help with uh, PTSD um, at, a, at a clinic here in Sydney. And, you know, I used to look back at, at that particular time and a couple of years after that, I think that that was like the time when I lost everything. You know, I had a 
house on the beach in North Queensland, you know, I was in a relationship and then I was like living in my car homeless, you know, went bankrupt, lost a lot. But um, what I didn't lose was my life and um, I didn't lose recovery. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful for that because there were a lot of times there where it just made no sense to me to stay alive, you know, let alone, you know, stay sober and clean. But, you know, but I did. And um, so what happened is <clears throat> I... Um, got some really good help with PTSD and, you know, started trying to put, you know, things into action to uh, maintain and, you know, some recovery, you know, like with diet and health and, you know, really got involved with um, 12-step recovery programs again. And, you know, I found that really difficult. You know, I think, um, you know, lots of people can, you know, sort of lots of return service people talk about the difficulties, um, you know, returning from, you know, service overseas and sort of, uh, reintegrating with a civilian community and that's difficult and trying to do it in um, in recovery is uh, is difficult as well um, so I found that so that's what I did anyway I you know really got involved in um, in recovery again and um, yeah now and you know there's a lot that I do today to try to maintain um, health as much as I can in terms of you know physical health and mental health so I've really had to change the way that, that I live in order to um, to manage that particular condition. There's a couple of things I want to ask you is in all in all your time post army um, when you when you said that you know you lost everything would did, did you ever come close to picking up a drink or a drug again during that time? Not not particularly not not particularly. I mean there's definitely times when I thought about it. Uh, yeah, definitely. But uh, it was kind of like I, I really knew that it was not just not a good option. Uh, I, I thought about suicide more than you know, drinking or using because um, it was like recovery is just such a strong part of my life. I, I knew it wasn't the solution. I think some of the times where I probably came closest to thinking about drinking was um, on a plane. Um, after being in the explosion, I can have some real difficulties on planes and particularly with turbulence. I don't know if it reminds me of getting blown up or what it is, but... Um, and then I, you know, start getting really uh, anxious about the, the plane exploding. You know, it just, just reminds me of getting blown up or something. It's it's horrendous. And um, there's been times when that's happening when I think a drink would take this fucking anxiety away. And mm. you know, and you know, and I think that for like uh, I don't know, five seconds or something. But um, it doesn't. It hasn't really stayed in my mind. Did your did your <clears throat> involvement with twelve step programs help you with your PTSD? Do you think? Or did yeah, you get, yeah, definitely. Did you get some definitely. Sort of outside help for that, and, and I have I've had to sort of treat it independently. Like, um, yeah, it it does help, but it uh, it won't cure it. It's like uh, you don't go to the uh, don't go to the butchers to buy milk. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I have had to get specific help for the PTSD, and I've done EMDR, and you know that's like I can't even remember. It's like rapid eye movement, something I don't know, but. Uh, um, there's a number of different therapies I've done, like exposure therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, and it's been really helpful. But uh, there's no there's no one thing that um, is like a cure all. It really is a number of things. You know, like twelve step recovery um, stuff for me is essential. You know, like as a recovering uh, alcoholic and addict, but uh, also you know diet is essential and exercise is essential and um, you know mindfulness is essential. You know, practicing relaxation is essential. Uh, maintaining social connections are essential and um, 
and we all know this, I'm sure, but practicing them, um, it's really difficult, but I kind of make myself do these things, you know, it's just, and it's, it's all of these things working together. I've heard um, that they're just finding out about psychedelics. Have you heard about that or any type of, um, you know, mushrooms or LSD or uh, something similar like that? They're using psychedelics to treat PTSD these days, aren't they? I did hear, uh, I think it was a GP talking. I, there, I think there's been, I think ketamine or and like ketamine and MDMA has been right. used to uh, treat PTSD. And I heard a doctor say that, um, you know, give, give anyone MDMA and they're going to feel better. <laughs> like, of course. But uh, yeah. we, the, the long-term effects might not be what we're looking for. And, uh, you know, particularly um, someone... Uh, with addiction issues like myself, you know, it's just just okay. not, a, not a valid option. Yeah. All right. And I, I suppose my next question for you is having gone through what sounds like a bit of a horrific experience coming back with PTSD and then um, everything sort of going pear shaped for you. I mean, you know, what, what would you recommend to the, I mean, what services out there that could be improved what, from your experience, you know, like what, what have you learned? Oh, wow. What services could be improved? Well, there's a, there's a couple. <laughs> um, and I'm somewhat um, hopeful in seeing seeing some of the discussions and being involved with some discussions with the Department of Veteran Affairs recently in, you know, in ways that they're looking to improve their services to veterans. Um, I think that um, they're, it's a really difficult problem and they're doing... They're doing a lot to try and um, address it, and you know, and which is good because there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, there is a lot of help available for for veterans, and it can be quite difficult for the veterans to actually access that help. And I think that that's uh, something that will need to be addressed um, over time is um, helping helping that accessibility, helping making that helping make that a little bit easier somehow. And what role does spiritual? Yep. But there certainly is a lot of help available, but um, it, it can, and notwithstanding that it can be quite difficult to access it. What role has spirituality, what role does spirituality play in your life now? And has that helped, if, if at all? Do, do you have... Um, it, yeah, it, it, has, it has helped. Uh, you know, uh, saying it's helped is, is an understatement. It's just, it's just, it's been essential. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have survived without it. And I, I kind of roll my eyes and grimace a bit, like it kind of, it makes me sick to say it, you know, like I wish it was not the case, but, but it just is. Um, um, yeah, I don't believe that um, I would be here today without it, you know, and, and whatever that is. Uh, for me, it's just been, you know, some kind of faith and uh, belief that really makes no sense to me. That, you know, yeah, it's, and, and yet I just, I w wouldn't be here without it. And do, do you, um, it's in terms of service to others, I know that plays a big part of, recovery uh, for me i've been in recovery only a little while and i've you know that's one of the things that helps me get off myself which is the biggest uh the cause of my biggest suffering is when i have too much time to think and sit and think about myself basically so you know what what um how's that work for you do the uh, service of others yeah it's it saves my life you know like <laughs> Quite simply, it has and does save my life. Um, 
you know, and I'd prefer that, you know, if what would save my life is just hanging out at the beach and doing what I want. And, uh, and you know, that, that's important too. But, um, yeah, you know, I think the, the nature of um, addiction and alcoholism is a, a really deep self-centeredness and self-selfishness. And, um, you know, a way to break that is by doing things for other people. I think it's just some kind of, you know, truism that um, we can't, help someone else without being helped ourselves, And uh, yeah, we, you know, do things for other people. And, uh, I don't know, my life seems to get better. Yeah. And I've, uh, I've heard that you're studying law at the moment with, with a view <laughs> to becoming a lawyer. Is that right, Lee? Well, um, yeah, I, I started doing getting involved like with a bit of veterans advocacy, um, a couple of years ago and, um, I've always had an interest in law you know, for, for one reason or another. And, there you go. Uh, there you go. And, um, yeah, so I did, I started studying law about a year and a half ago, uh, particularly with the, um, with the aim of, you know, veterans advocacy and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. uh, you know, like st- studying law might be a, a bit generous on, uh, I'm enrolled in law and not doing a whole lot of studying at the moment. Certainly. Oh, come on. I, I know a bit more than that. You're like doing was, really well, mate. Don't, <laughs> don't talk yourself down. You're doing really well. Um, okay. I suppose I, we should probably end with a little bit of um, talk on addiction. After all your years, um, I'd like to know what you think. Some people say this, this is a question that intrigues me. Some people say that you're born with the disease of addiction other people I've heard say that, you know, most people have some sort of trauma in their life before the onset of, of addiction. Um, what, are, what are your views on that? I, I don't care. <laughs> really, like, really? In some ways, I don't care because um, what matters, I think, is that if I've got addiction, I need to treat it. And, you know, where it came from really doesn't matter. Okay. Um, and, and that being said, I'm not convinced either way. Um, I think I've seen examples of people who um, have not experienced trauma being um, addicts and alcoholics. Yeah. And, and I've certainly seen um, you know, evidence of people you know, uh, being experiencing trauma and not becoming you know, alcoholics and addicts. And uh, you know, without knowing a whole lot about it, my understanding is that the evidence is inconclusive. Mm. And um, and personally, you know, like you know, whatever, you know what I mean. Like it, it doesn't, it wouldn't really change things for me. You know, it was it caused by my trauma? Oh, maybe. You know, I think there's plenty of people without trauma who are alcoholics. So, you know, what about them? That's what I think. You know, who cares? You know, the thing is, if you've got it, you need to treat it wherever it came from. There you go. That's a fair enough answer. Um, and uh, I suppose, okay, I'll finish up with one last question. You touched on it at the very start of the interview. But the title of my podcast is The Gift of Addiction. Hmm. Do you think addiction is or can be a gift? And if so, why? I mean, I don't know about addiction. I think addiction, it's a horrendous thing. And, um, you know, if someone sort of, you know, knocks on your door later tonight and go, here, here's some addiction, like you tell them to fuck <laughs> off. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yep. Get the fuck out of my fucking face. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yep. Oh, fuck's sake. But um, I think... The gift is that um, that having addiction, it's it's forced me into a way of life that um, that you know probably otherwise I wouldn't have embraced, and that um, it, it really is it's a it's a beautiful way of life that not wanted to have anything to do with, 
you know, other than, you know, having addiction force me into it. So, so the recovery from addiction is, is really where the gift is. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think it is. And I think that, um, you know, it's almost like, like, a, it's almost like I've experienced a few lives, you know, but, uh, particularly with that, that life, um, the way of life and the mindset or the, you know, practicing, um, addict and alcoholic, um, it, as, and then the, uh, the the life and the mindset of, a, of an alcoholic and addict in recovery, they're they're like complete opposites. It's like you know having had you know two lives in one. And I think that I think it gives me and other people a uh, really a unique perspective on life. And I think that I think that is a gift. Absolutely, I think it's a gift. You know, in comparison with people who are who kind of you know stay in that kind of you know addiction mindset, and also people who have only like ever been nice people, so to speak, to put it that way, you know, um, yeah. I think that, um, I think, you know, we get, we can experience some kind of really deep compassion, you know, for ourselves and for others having, um, having experienced both ways of ways of life. And I think that's a gift. Certainly. Absolutely. Awesome. awesome Lee. I've got, I've just got to uh, express my gratitude to you for coming on the show and sharing your story. So, so honestly, and you know, I, I hope that, uh, somebody is listening that might get uh, some benefit from it, but I've, I've really enjoyed chatting to you, mate, because somebody who's early in recovery myself to, to speak to somebody who's got 20 plus years, plus you've been through a hell of a lot. Um, I'm really honored to have had you on, on the show. Cool. Thanks. Let's hope we don't fuck it up tomorrow. <laughs> we won't. We'll be right. One day at a time. Yeah. Thanks, Lee. I'm going to sign out, but I'll uh, I'll be seeing you around the traps. Cool. Right. See you, mate. Right. See you.